This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Hey, I just slacked you, and this is crazy, but here's our number, so call us maybe. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't even watch the message. I left you a delightful Oh God, what's going on? Message. Here? What's happening? I can't see it, so Oh <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you in a house? No, I'm at my cigar club. Ah I don't have furniture or internet at my house and the internet at my mom's house is abysmally bad and I was gonna say, are you just like smoking a cigar in your mom's house? That would be pretty that'd be pretty badass. <laughs> just like, hey Ma, it's gonna fill up your house with cigar smoke. That would be, uh, yeah, that would be a thing. Also, Pascal wants me to say that the reusable cake is a lie. Yeah, I saw that. I'm I'm assuming it's in reference to something we said. I don't remember what. Um, uh, Yesterday when I was doing the show notes for the episode that just came out, I have to write like a little line in the beginning and somehow like we were talking about reusability for some reason. And so I wrote the like have your reusable cake and eat it too or something like that. And I ah. when I posted it, I said to Tom, I was like, that line is dumb, but let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I took your word for it. It was dumb and we went with it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it fit. The portal joke. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We got a lot of feedback. Should we do some feedback? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. We did get a lot of feedback on that last episode. Yeah. So Stripe has a fake Stripe now. Yeah. Stripe mock. Mock Stripe? Stripe mock. We'll link to it in the show notes. Which uh, is cool. Yeah. Was not around the last time I was using Stripe. Brander, I think his name is. He sent that to us. He's a developer. He's a listener and a developer at Stripe. And also another a number of people like tweeted us to say like, hey, this is a thing that exists. And I, he like he gave us a little bit of the history as to like why this thing Stripe Mock exists in the way that it does, which makes sense. It was like each language that Stripe. I'm gonna try and paraphrase, and hopefully I'm accurately representing his point. But each language that Stripe supports kind of came about independently, and each of them had their own testing strategy, and it was kind of a mess. And so they wanted something that they could use with all of these client libraries in order to test. So Stripe Mock is a Go binary that you basically just start it up and you hit that instead of Stripe, right? Yeah, pretty much. Right, so it's a, it's a solution that's not tied to a particular programming language and it helps them as well as their customers. I think that I haven't used it, so I can't comment, but like one of the nice things about having like a fake that's written in the language that you are you know, writing your tests in is that you can control it in the language that you're writing your tests in, right? So you can say like, hey, fake, um, I'm about to give you some input. Respond in this manner. I imagine you can do the same with Stripe Mock. It's just a matter of knowing the magic values of like, oh, here's what an invalid credit card looks like. Things like, like when that. I, uh, I don't know, fake Stripe, the, the Ruby gem mostly wants you to verify things by making fake API calls to it anyway. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with validating it through the same API. The thing with Stripe, which he also mentioned a test mode, which I think existed, but maybe was different last. It's been, it's been a long time since I've actually used Stripe. But the issue with Stripe was even if they had a sandbox mode, it was very difficult to to completely reset in between tests. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something like like AWS S3, which you know you just drop the bucket and recreate it, and bam, you've got a, you've got a clean bucket. Right. 
yeah so a number of people did tweet us to say that there is like a there is a sandbox mode but i guess i don't know I, I haven't used it and maybe it's easy to reset between tests but stripe mock look into that let's see the other bit of feedback that i thought was particularly interesting and piqued my interest and i shared it with some people on the team here was um from sam moore who's a developer at betterment and they have some open source projects and one of them is uh web valve it's basically from what i can tell it's web mock at its base and then on top of that is a layer of like conventions that get you to optionally to like sinatra applications he described it as like an abstraction over the pattern of fake stripe which you know fake stripe at its heart is a sinatra app that responds with given fixtures at different paths and then there's some controllability on top of that but it seemed like a really good pattern for really cheap fakes like that yeah I think it's uh, it's great to have something that helps to implement those. Even if Stripe has, you know, their shipped Stripe mock thing, you're inevitably going to end up needing to test APIs that you, you cannot hit the real API because either the data is just not something you can rely on or you can't clean it up between tests or for whatever reason. And right. so there's always going to be a need to implement stri- uh, fakes and anything that helps make that easier seems great. Right. And the one of the things, we didn't mention this at all, but like when you take WebMock onto your project, you can set it in this mode. And I think web valve sets this mode automatically, which is like, I'm not going to allow external HTTP requests, or, right. which basically forces this issue. Cause I've gone to a number of projects where you come into a, like a pretty well-established test suite and you're like, Oh, I can't run this unless I'm connected to the internet or unless I have API keys or like, and so then you like, you're like, what happens if I turn on WebMock <laughs> and say like disable net connect or whatever it is, whatever the method you have to pass you call this. And then like, I don't know, a third of the test suite fails. You're like, okay, well, that's not an option right now. So (laughs) we've got to chip away at this. So like, you know, if you're early on and you're just adding your first external interaction or something like that, definitely I would suggest shoving this in there so that you know where it is you have external um, dependencies. I'm a big fan of uh, if you have tests and you are hitting a real thing and you want to have a real API key present, skipping those tests if the API key is not present. Mm -hmm. This is on my mind lately because of some issues I'm dealing with on a client project. How does conditionally skipping tests impact things like bisect, RSpec bisect? I guess if you if the only thing you're conditional on is like the presence of a key, you just make sure you have that key or something like that. Right, or continuously don't have it because the RSpec bisect should work fine as long as right. whether or not you're skipping right. the test is consistent between bisect runs. Right. Unless it happens to be the like the test that's causing the problem is something that is getting skipped in your environment and not in another environment or something like that. Right, but then in that case, you're you, you know you wouldn't be having the problem in your machine, so you wouldn't be bisecting. The reason why that came to mind is like the problem I'm I'm having right now is like on the client project that I'm on, they and I see this in a lot of places where people add like random data to factories because they want like a I guess the thinking is like well I don't care what state it's in, just give me a valid state, mm-hmm. like give me a post that has a valid state of either published, draft, or promoted, or whatever the case may be, and so then they they randomize the state. But then there are some tests written that depend on the state of a post. And so the person writing the test says, like, create post. And they're like, oh, cool. It's in a published state automatically. And then they continue <laughs> and they commit the code. And, it, you know, the tests run fine every third time. Right. <laughs> or like, you know, so I'm having some of those problems where it's like, oh, kind of having to explain that, like, even when I run the test with the same seed, they're not the same test because I'm testing with different objects every right. time. So I fixed all that, got rid of like, ex- there, there's still like, um, a lot of people really like Faker. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's still a lot of that for like names and addresses, but like you're probably not switching on the name that you're getting back from a factory unless you're setting right. that name in the factory. So that's probably okay. But something like the state or like the number of associates. So if you say like, I don't know, a post with authors and then randomizing the number of authors that that post will end up having is something that's going to could very easily down the road or immediately impact the result of your test and what you're actually testing. So I fixed a bunch of those. And then unfortunately found also that in the specs, there's some randomization where it'll say like, uh, they'll do sampling from an array in a spec and, you know, test that. So that means every time I run the tests, even with the same factory, I'm getting different tests. Anyway, so don't do that, I guess. I wonder if you could pass the R spec seed into Faker as its RNG seed. That would be cool if you could, if you could like constantly, <laughs> by setting this one seed, be like, anything that's random is going to be the same regardless of <laughs> i'm definitely not you know i'm i'm very much in favor of don't use random data in your tests right there is some value though for types of fields where there's a good likelihood that there are going to be valid values that you have for some reason written code poorly against email addresses and names being two that that developers like to make a lot of assumptions about that yep are not true for all valid names or email addresses right and so I think there's some value in something like Faker simply because it exercises a larger range of values than your handwritten tests would likely do. But definitely, definitely, if you do anything like that, your tests need to be deterministic. I don't know if you can pass Faker your own seed, but that would be neat if you could uh, make sure that everything shares the RSpec seed. Yeah, I just did a quick... Can you just globally seed the Ruby random number generator? I would assume that's what Faker's using. Yeah, I don't know. Um, somebody will Google this for us when this episode comes out and tell us the answer. <laughs> for, on, on, on the topic of Factory Girl, though, I think Factory Girl's way overused. Yeah, we have blog posts that say the same, even though we maintain and write Factory Girl. It's like, uh, basically, the summation is like, if you want fast tests, don't use Factory Girl. Well, it's not, it's not even like for a speed thing. It, it, it shouldn't be that hard to get a record in a valid state. If it's hard to get uh, a record in a valid state in your tests, it's going to be painful for your users, too. So you think that even when I need a fully persistent active record object, I should just call create? Like, not factory goal create, but like class.create? Until you start to have a a legitimate reason not to, yeah. Because also by going to factory girl, you are losing valuable feedback from your tests. Test setup being hard is is a symptom of something being wrong. Or it's a smell anyway. Mm, I guess. So you're, you're saying we're going straight to the assumption that setting up a valid active record instance is hard rather than letting our test guide us to like hey setting up a valid active record instance here is hard right you know if you need it to be in in in, you need it to be published or draft or whatever database default is probably what you want yeah i still think i'd prefer in cases where i need to create a record even just being like, here are the required fields is a pain in the butt. And like the, the fact that they have to be unique. So I have to like, oh, okay, I, I didn't know they had to be unique. So I have to know they're unique everywhere, right? Well, unique to that test because the test is running in an isolated database. Right, sure, yes. And there could just potentially be, I don't know. I think I'm okay with it. I think I'm okay with it in feature tests. I think it's overused in almost every other type of test. You know, you have to have something persisted in the database to do any sort of like tests on a scope or something like that, but... I mean, I don't know. I, you can also just have a helper function for your feature tests. If you, you know, if you have a group of feature tests where you always need to have, you know, a group with uh, three companies that belong to it and some number of employees and need to be signed in as one of those. Well, isn't this factory a helper function? 
It, it has, is. A, it has a, a little it, meta programming to do it, but it is. It's it's a poorly named helper function Factory? because then it ends up being create employee, and that creates two dozen employees and three companies and a group. <laughs> true, true. Uh, um, well, you would do create. I mean, ideally, the way we try and tell people to use Factory Girl is like create employee would just create the bare minimum that you needed to have a valid persistent employee, right? Right. Um, where it goes wrong is people stray from that. They're like, well, I'm never going to want to have an employee without a company, so i got to create the company. And then somebody's like, well, I'm never going to want to have a company without um, whatever, an address, so I'm going to create an associated address. And so then right. like, you call create employee, and all of a sudden there's 500 things, rather than just being like create employee and a trait that's called with company. And then with company can optionally call the trait for having an address or something like that. So using traits better and not assuming that you're always going to want associated data, things like that. And I think that that helps that problem a little bit of the like, I called create on this thing and I got 500 of these other things. Because the, the alternative of like, I just call active record create every time I need a record. So you start doing that. And then you do reach the point where you're like, you know, it'd be nice to have a factory here. And now you've got to go back and update all those locations where you have to call this factory, which isn't like a hard change to make, but it's an annoying one to make. Well, and, and you don't necessarily need to go change it. If all of the other places that we're using Active Record Create before still work, there's no reason you need to go up. Right, all but I'm them. saying now they don't, right? Now I've introduced this sure. thing that like makes it more of a pain, and I'm like, all right, either I've got to go to every location and say, like, oh, you know, where we were just passing email address, now it has to be a unique email address everywhere. Or I guess that's a bad example because, like you said, if I'm creating two, I'm probably just even – I would just, like, use two different email addresses. But, like – some like this this thing that was like I'm adding a new field and it's required and it's not set at a, as a database default for whatever reason, uh, right. like social security number or let's not use that in light of the Equifax uh, <laughs> breach. But <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about the Equifax thing. Let's put a pin in that yeah. and come back to it because okay. I, have, I have feelings about that. But yeah, then you have to go to all those locations and add that. Like I just think that that's the you're missing option three, which is what. Consider whether whether this is also going to make it more painful for your users, and if you can find a way to make this somehow optional or have a default value. Right. Uh, I can't default your social... Well, I mean, I guess what I could do is download the Equifax breach, find your email address in it, and then just associate your social security number. <laughs> you know what? I love this example. Social security number. Yeah. So then consider the fact that a social security number isn't really private and isn't a terribly great unique identifier for a person and isn't something that you should always mandatorily collect. And is under no circumstances something that you want to at all be involved in protecting and collecting. Right. And like, like, like it's so easy. I saw like uh, in the app that I'm working on now, they have to like, it's finance related. And in order to do the check, like the identity checks that they need, they need your last four digits of your social security number. And so they prompt for that. And there was a PR that was like, here's how we're going to use the last four digits of social security number. And twice I had to leave the feedback that was like, hey, make sure we add this to the filter params, like, or it's going to start <laughs> right. showing up in logs, right? And it's, that's, that's the kind of thing that's like super easy to forget. Yeah. Like, even though we don't store it anywhere, like we just use it and pass it off to another service. We never persist it, but we persist it to our logs if we don't put it in filter params. So that kind of One thing. of the things I like about jumping to a, a helper method by default, though, is that you tend to then name it on, on specifically what fields it's defaulting. So mm -hmm. you have, you know, user with dummy social security number. Right. Because one of the other problems that you end up with factories, though, is that it's just people, and it's the same problem with fixtures, really. People, you know, you have, you end up with a mystery guest way too easily. You have people relying on the state that is not local to that test. Yes, and that's, that is another, that's another pattern. Like, the first time I worked with Josh, he pointed that out to me, and I was like, oh, of course. He was like, yes, uh, every blog post has to have a state, Right. 
And mm-hmm. in the factory, we or in the factory or in the database, we default that state to published or I mean, dra- let's say we default it to draft. Right. Right. If you're depending on that in your test, you should absolutely set it in your test, even though it defaults in the factory. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise, like that factory changes and now your test breaks because the factory changed. Or it's just a mystery guess because you're like, why did this not appear on the home page? Like if yep. you if you put, you know, status draft, it's a little bit more clear why it doesn't appear on the on the home page. I'm a big fan of never using accessors from models in your tests. Never using accessors from models in your tests. So give me an example. So let's say that you're testing whether or not a user is logged in. And so you go in, you go through through your signup page, and then you're expecting that their email appears on on the page. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of, in your assertion, always just putting the string of what their email is expected to be there as opposed to user.email. Right. I go back and forth on this. I go back and forth on it, but I think I'm more with you than not because the way I would do it is say like, I would set a local variable for email that says like email equals Sean at SeanTheProgrammer.com. And then I right. would say create user email colon email. And then I would say expect page to have text email just so I'm not typing that same string twice. And like I used to type them out, but I think somebody was like, actually, it's not clear to me. And this may have been in the days when I was writing much longer tests, but it was like, it's not clear to me at the bottom of this test why that string is important. Right. Well, I, th- I think one way you, you help with that, too, and this is also why, again, I, I like give even when there's a handful of uh, required values, just providing them is you end up writing your tests in a way that they tell a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you end up with a user named Jim and you tell a story about what, you know, what Jim is doing with your application and all of the values end up having a little bit more meaning than user one at example dot com with the username user one and, you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. default password you're using in your factory. Right. The other interesting thing that I've actually run into, I, we ran into it on um, on the T1D project we did, is like we had so many tests that were creating so many things in factories that had like sequences, right? So maybe you mm-hmm. have maybe you have like a username, and the username comes out like username one, username two, username three, username four. Guess what else matches username one? <laughs> username ten. Username eleven. Username like all yeah. right, right. So like <laughs> you have to be careful if all of your unique strings are unique only by their ending, right? Right. Like, because like, then a shortened version of that also matches. So you have to be very careful with things like that. You're right. There are a lot of gotchas that you kind of need to need to be aware of. I don't think I've ever written a Rails application that didn't use either Factory Girl or Fixtures. I'm not saying, like, never use them. Yeah. They certainly have their place. And there are, and you do end up with legitimate cases of just where, no, this legitimately just needs a ton of setup and the state isn't super important. It isn't something I can I can name very well and a factory is the right, the right case for that. Right. I just think that it should be the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing that that would solve is, like, well, and there's other ways to solve this problem, too, is, like, um, the client project I'm on, a new developer started who's very bright developer but not experienced with Ruby. And this is now, like, I have this conversation a lot with people where they're like, point to some code in a file and be like, where does this method come from? And it's often, like, one of the first times they ask me that is often in a spec where they see create or build, and they're like, what is this? And I have to be like... method, method name dot source location. Well, I show them, I sh- like, if I'm teaching them how to fish, I show them pry with, like, show source, whatever. But that that's my way of doing that. But And so, like, you can get around that by not including the syntax methods and having to say, like, factorygirl.create, factorygirl.build. Mm-hmm rather than just saying create and build. But that's kind of just a, a large 
it was funny because like that conversation like i I'll, like he asked me a few of those questions like where's this and i have to be like oh, okay it's a factory girl thing it gets included from a module here here's how you need but you just like it's just such a common pattern that people just got tired of writing factory girl so we just write create everywhere all right and then i eventually after like the fifth question i was like you know <laughs> the easiest way to figure out <laughs> where a method comes from in ruby is unfortunately to run the application and ask the application <laughs> yep <laughs> Well, and my favorite is um, where does act record base save come from? Because like, there are sixteen answers, all of which are correct. Right. <laughs> that's in in my prior experience. That's where I just say like show source, you know, record dot save, and then I just tack on a dash s and another dash s and another dash s, and it runs through super 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 right runs until all, you get yeah. nil. <laughs> it's like oh, okay, this is no longer calling super. Here's the base of it, uh, and it does all that other stuff too. Uh, but yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's a common issue working on Rails and, and debugging. And like, like, how do you introduce new functionality that like layers in? You have to figure out like where in the inheritance tree this module gets included in order to like do the thing that you want it to do? Yeah, I've, I've been trying to be better lately about when I do need to do something like that in an included hook, asserting that the super modules that I expect to be there are there. Ah. Both so that people who are using Active Record Core directly don't accidentally mess this up and then also so that the files a little bit more self-documenting of like yes this is adding additional behavior to save and it's expected to sit right here in the hierarchy yeah okay. not that i try and add things that decorate save too terribly often but <laughs> um you know it happens all right cool so let's never use factories again <laughs> I mean, so Diesel's test suite, mm -hmm. just as an example, and of course, Diesel's test suite has much, much less data than a real application would. But it's been interesting just looking at the patterns of uh, where we tend to need more and more setup. So like, for example, in our tests for associations, especially when I was getting into all of the different ways that you could do a multi-table join. Mm -hmm. So I need to have five plus tables, all of which need to be populated with more than one record. And in all the cases, basically, uh, every table needs to have at least more than one record that belongs to the same parent, and also records belonging to at least two parents. You know, enough so that I can I can verify through whatever complex join tree that we're doing that I got specifically the right combination of records, and I didn't get it as a side effect of there only being records that satisfy whatever condition I'm testing. Mm -hmm. And so that, that got into the case where I eventually I just have a, a function in that file now that's like set up test data for multi-table joins. That just creates, you know, 80 billion records. And then those tests, those tests are super, super mystery guesty because they just call this function that has no name. And like, when I join this way, this strange combination of records should be returned in this exact pattern. But for the most part, like most of our tests, we have two users that are there for most of our tests. We have a third user that is conditionally there. And so we have a function that uh, is named connection with Sean and Tess in users table. And mm -hmm. then uh, I always manually create the third user whenever, whenever we need him. And uh, it's been le less bad than I expected. And uh, same thing in, in Crates.io, which does have much more of a case of, um, you know, if I want to test stuff on the versions endpoint, versions always have to belong to a crate. The crate has to be, uh, has to be valid or whatever. And there we started to reach a little bit more for something closer to a factory. Hmm. It's a builder object. Not so much because there's a lot of state that needs to have certain values to be, uh, like, it's pretty easy to create a valid record there. All it really needs is a name and... An author and i think the only thing the builder does is creates an author if we don't specify one but we always make you specify the name mm -hmm. oh and it needs to have at least one version so we create a version if you don't specify that it has any specific versions right this sounds very like what i would do with factory girl yeah <laughs> yep 
So like your your approach though, like when, when you were talking about like test connection with Sean or whatever it was called, that sounds like a fixture, right? So it's like conditionally loading fixtures for that case. Not that that's right, but bad. I'm, but I'm stating I'm stating in my test, you know, right. what is special about the records that are getting created, and also that they exist. Right. Rather than like if you just use Rails fixtures, you're just like these things always exist. <laughs> right. Like they just come out of nowhere, and then you're like, every test is referencing this thing called Sean. What the hell is Sean? Right. <laughs> right. And, and then also specifically, you know, so the the only thing that is implicit is um, so that builds off of the connection method or function, mm-hmm. and the only thing that's implicit on connection is that connection is in a transaction. Okay. Yeah. So then there's uh, connection without transaction for basically when I need to test transaction behavior. And those ones are really fun because I need to make sure that, you know, because our test suite runs in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so for the tests that aren't running inside of a transaction, I have to make sure that like they can't do anything to any table that they didn't create. And the table that they create has to be, I always just create the table with the same name as the test. Uh, but it means that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of setup code there for each one of those tests. Those are fun. Yeah. <laughs> Or uh, what was the one I was right? Oh, I sent you a link. I was adding support for select uh, for update. Yeah. Uh, which for those who aren't familiar, select for update, basically it grabs the rows with a select, but then at the same time, it will exclusively lock them with the same lock that would occur if you were to update those rows. Mm-hmm. And it can help it can help prevent deadlocks. And also, in, at least in Postgres, you have the option to do skip locked and there are other things you can give it to get a less restrictive lock. But what's funny is to, to verify that that behavior is working correctly, I need to be testing... Uh, to test locking behavior, I need to have multiple connections. And because we only do um, blocking I.O. and diesel right now, that means I need to spin them up on multiple threads. And in either case, with, whether it's async I.O. or uh, multiple threads, that means that it can't be in a transaction either because they need to be able to see the data, uh, which means then each of these tests, again, same thing, needs to have tables that's accessing that are unique to that test and are create, you know, created outside of a transaction. And the data for them is created outside of a transaction as well. But those ones are even worse because I have to actually give Diesel a lot of information about these tables because um, I actually care about the data going into them because that's you know how the test is going to describe whether it succeeded or not. Yeah, this makes sense. It's a logical thing. Anyway, Anna, just my experience with crates.io, like we reached for factory-ish things where they were needed, mm-hmm. and then when they, I've been, I've actually as a side as a side effect, like Active Record Base Create is a much more lightweight feeling method in terms of the amount of code you have to write to just insert a record than there is in diesel. Uh, so I've been working on adding a new feature for 1.0 to make kind of more ad hoc, make it very easy to do ad hoc updates where you're just like, I want to update this field on, you know, mm-hmm. basically the, the the equivalent of model.where, whatever, dot update, whatever. That exists in diesel and is more or less exactly as lightweight feeling as it is in Rails uh, because you can just update with a tuple. Right. So you just, you know, you just give it the column and the value that you want. It's more or less like a hash, but with dot EQ in between the key and value instead of a colon. But we don't have the equivalent for update, for inserts. You always have to have a struct there. Mm-hmm. And so that just leads to like, unless you want to specify every field on the struct every time, you need to make sure that every field on the struct is capable of having a default value. So that way you can implement default for the struct. And, and even then it's just three more lines than you would have otherwise. So I'm working on making yeah. inserts more up to, um, more lightweight as well. But but Crates.io is, is a, you know, it's a beefier application than you'd expect. It has a lot more going on there than you'd think a, a registry, uh, a package registry would. And we have a factory-ish thing in the one place where it was really needed, and everywhere else we just create the records as as we as we need them, and and it's been fine. Yeah, I did want to go back. So that so Sam, who also who's the person who told us about Web Valve, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. But he also said something earlier in his email, which was basically like he avoids writing integrated HTTP tests unless he absolutely has to. The idea being that like 
what do those tests tell you when they when they eventually fail? I mean, ideally, they're telling you that something about the API has changed. Shouldn't production already be telling you that? Yeah, but I still right. want to be able. I, I don't want to have to be you know looking at production logs and diffing them against my mocks to figure right. out exactly what's broken. <laughs> I want to have my tests tell me exactly what's changed and why, and be something I can debug. Right. Yeah. So like, but I, I just thought it was an interesting way to look at it. And I immediately thought of like, there's probably plenty of high value API integrations that don't happen regularly enough in production, but that you, right. you know, you might catch in your tests. But I just thought it was like, I hadn't thought about like the whole, like, what is, <laughs> and, and I mean, I guess I should think about this more is like, what does this test failing tell me that like, what's it going to save me from that kind of thing? One other thing to think about too. So there's a couple of reasons that test would be failing, right? Number one, the API just legitimately changed. Yep. Uh, in which case, you, you want your test to tell you that. You need to fix it. Mm-hmm. Number two is you, you wrote your test in a way that the API is not consistently returning the same thing, in which case it's a bad test. And I, you know, like I said, there are times to reach for just a full on, web, you know, only use WebMock or only use fakes because there are some APIs that you just cannot realistically test against, and that's fine. But yep. again, still, it's something that, you know, you should fix. Uh, and then number three is okay, well, the API is flaky. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing to think about in the, in, in, for that argument, though. So, so I, yeah, I'm a big advocate of if you're hitting a real API, use VCR, put the cassettes in GitIgnore, and, right. and have them expire so that they're reasonably frequently rerun on local machines and that uh, CI always runs against them. Right. So if that results in, because the API is flaky, CI fails a third of the time, what do you <laughs> think production's doing? Right. <laughs> Sounds like you need to get some retry behavior in there right. and figure out how to make your interaction with the API less flaky. Right. And to be clear, I think that is the sweet spot of like what he was talking about here. He was talking about the case where you might use like VCR and have CI hit the real service or have your developer machines hit the real service eventually. That's where he's he starts the question of like, well, what is this what is this really getting me? I think there's still reasons to do it. And he, and he does he does admit that like, yeah, there are times when you have to do that. I, I think it's the same argument as as a mockist testing style versus an a more integration heavy testing style. Okay. You know, there are arguments for every object should be tested in complete isolation where all of its collaborators are mocked out. And I used to be majorly in that camp. There, And then there, you know, you pass in real collaborators and you test the side effects. Uh, I think the only difference with HTTP APIs is just it's harder to test against the real thing. And there are more considerations uh, both for and against mocking. And mocking is also harder. Mm-hmm. But I think the value you get there is, this, is the same thing as the value you get from passing an object in a unit test, a real collaborator versus a mock which is that your assumptions about the interaction between those two objects gets tested. Right. I should mention also, uh, I am a big fan. If you have an object and its job is to interact with a third-party API, I don't think I mentioned this. Uh, I'm a big fan, though. That I only want to hit the real thing in integration tests or in the unit tests for that object. In unit tests for other objects which interact with that, those things get a mock, a Ruby mock. Right. Well, you shouldn't have a unit test that integrates with another thing. That's n- technically not a unit test, right? <laughs> <laughs> if the object is so let's if you're using the money gem okay right and you have something that takes you know a, a price as its argument i'm going to pass it a real money object i'm not going to pass it a mock right right cool you want to talk about equifax let's talk about equifax <laughs> okay so i heard about this and i was like all right whatever i assume my cre- i assume my credit is out there already anyway and I don't really do anything to prevent. <laughs> I should probably do something about that. But anyway, so I'm on this text message thread with my family who never really bring up technical things. And when they do, I generally shudder and try not to say anything because I don't want to be the person <laughs> left with uh, picking picking up the pieces when things go wrong. But um, somebody in the family texts everybody and it's like, go check to see if you were leaked. Uh, hit this website. 
which is like trustedidpremier.com. Slash which X- Firefox would give you a phishing warning for. Well, it, did, it didn't at this time. So I, I'm looking at it, and then like people are like, I checked, and I checked for my kids, and I checked for this, and I'm like, Trusted ID Premiere, that doesn't have even have an equity. So I'm like, all right, let me check out what this is. So I like click through to it, and it loads up in Safari, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, it just has an Equifax logo on it, but it's not an Equifax domain. Why wouldn't it be an Equifax domain? And then I'm like, let me look at right. the cert. So I click on the cert, <laughs> and it's from Amazon. And I'm like, what the f- They're using a Route 53 cert? I was like, well, and it was super poorly set up too. They were use, they were only using SSL 1.0. They were uh, they were vulnerable to all kinds of man in the middle attacks. They weren't checking a rev- for revocation certificates, right? Like, and so I I'm like, all right, I feel like to be a good family member here, I have to protect these people. So I was like, at this point, this is all I knew of the situation. What I told you right there, and I was like, and that there had been an Equifax thing, and so I was like, I would recommend not doing this. This site does not appear to be controlled by Equifax from a web nerd point of view there's several things wrong with this website and if you give them six of your social security the last six of your social security digits you might as well just give them your entire social security number right because the first three are just are just based on where you were born right and you give and you gave them your name so like this looked like somebody just fishing right it looked like a classic fishing site just one thing that's interesting because a lot of places will ask for your last four digits Mm mm-hmm and even that, if they only have the last four, somebody can get your full social security number very easily. The first three are based off of where you were born, and the uh, and the fourth and fifth digit are based off of the year you were born. Interesting. So if they have your name in the last four of your social, it's pretty easy, and they and they you know know anything about you, it's pretty easy for somebody to get your social security number. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I just like I immediately wrote to them and was like, "Stop doing this." And they wrote back and they were like, "Well, my boss sent it to me and all the companies," and I was like. And then I started digging in and I was, I had to go back and be like, all right, well, it looks like this is legit, but all of the problems I just told you about, <laughs> those are real. And then I just looked yeah. like the like tinfoil hat computer guy. And then I told them, I, I busted out the whole like, oh, also, by the way, through cursory Googling the license agreement or the user agreement, when you submit this form is you're not going to sue Equifax. You won't join right. any class action lawsuit against them. And it also doesn't even and, oh, tell by the you way, anything meaningful. It seems to randomly tell you whether or not you were affected or not. <laughs> yeah, you can put in test for the name and one two three four five six for the for the, for the social, and it will say, "Yep, you were affected by this hack." Right. <laughs> Please sign up for our identity theft protection service. Right. I guess we should probably do a PSA. One of the things that you can do is call the uh, credit bureaus and ask them to put a security freeze on your social security number. Which basically means that nobody can pull your credit unless you call them beforehand. Right. Everybody should do that now. That's the thing I wanted to do. Have you operated in this mode? Do you do that? Yeah, I have. I've I've done that. I've been that way forever. Is it annoying? It was annoying when I got a mortgage and a car loan back to back. But I mean, I would rather have those things be slightly annoying than have any risk of identity theft through my uh, social security number. So when you do that, like, so let's say you go and you apply for a car loan or something like that. Do you then ask them? You say like, which credit bureaus are you going to check? Because I need to unlock my. <laughs> I need they're going to check all three. Oh, most okay. Likely. So you just call at you... least for a mortgage. They're going to check all three. Do you have to like leave it unlocked for a period, or do you say like, I want to unlock it for a check from this company for like? Yeah, you you call and it unlocks for twenty four hours. Okay, so you just leave your door unlocked for twenty four hours, and then you lock the door when you're done. Or no, it automatically I, yeah. locks. All right. It automatically locks. I mean, that, I mean, you don't really have much other choice. You can't have it be like a credit card fraud thing where for a purchase over X number, you get a phone call and you have to press one. It'd be great if they did that. Well, I mean, it, it could. they could do the system that I was talking about where you're like, instead of it being me saying like, unlock, it could. they could say like, we got a request from so-and-so. Do you want to allow? And I could say yes or no. 
right right and then it's then it's just that particular request i'm not like leaving right. the door unlocked for 24 hours right right and it would be like it would be great if they did that they don't the right. leaving it unlocked for 24 hours i don't know isn't super concerning because sure if somebody knows that i'm specifically trying to get a loan well it's also a pain in the butt because like if you, you if you apply for your loan you don't know if they're going to check it that day or they're going to check it on monday or they're going to check like you don't know their schedule they have to ask your permission before they can do what they call a hard pull on your credit right but they don't have to do any of that for soft pull type stuff they right? don't and i don't remember if it blocks a soft pull or not but nobody nobody can open a new account on just a soft pull okay but like if they ask your permission to do a hard pull they're doing it right then yeah okay i mean you know there's i guess there's no reason they couldn't wait a day but they don't all right we're gonna put we're gonna put a link to the show notes on how to do this and uh everybody can click and do it and then they'll be good but it's just you can no longer assume your social security number is private nobody can assume that right and then we're gonna need a number of people that listen to this show and that are or, or maybe not even necessarily listen to this show but civically minded folks who are just gonna run for office and get rid of the idea of social security numbers being a some sort of like secure financial identifier yeah and replace it with something that i'm sure will be somehow even worse <laughs> i mean i'm hoping this leaves that happening regardless i, I just don't, don't see think so. how the government can continue to operate assuming that social security numbers are private now so there's one or two things i think would have to happen one some rich and powerful people will have to get swept up in identity fraud and have to de and this is the key, and though I don't think it'll happen, it would have to impact them in the manner that it would impact like just regular people, this happening to regular people. And the reason why it won't do that is because like rich and powerful people will just sick an army of attorneys on whatever the situation is and get it all straightened out because they're rich and powerful. Right. So I'm sorry, but I'm cynical about that aspect. And then the other aspect is like the uncertainty around the security, not just the fact that they are insecure, but there would have to be enough uncertainty around the security of social security numbers that it starts to impact credit markets, right? they start to say like well we can't actually give you this loan because we're just we're just not sure or that there's so much identity fraud that like it's really hard to determine like okay well this person has a low credit score but everybody has a low credit score because there's so much <laughs> identity right. fraud so like until that happens i don't think i think just the idea that social security numbers aren't secret is not going to make it it's not going to change anything unfortunately that's fair i don't have i don't have an idea what would you replace it with i guess in um Actually, we had some visitors from Denmark and like when they go to use their credit card, they also have like, it's basically like one of those RSA keychain type things that gives you like a, or OTP type thing. And then they have like a printout of like 10 codes that they carry. So like that was the kind of, that was one kind of thing. You could go to some sort of 2FA system on that. Right. Or was it, um, isn't there some place in Eastern Europe that uses like everybody gets a encryption key or something like that? I don't know. I haven't heard about that. I'm going to Google this. I mean, it would definitely, you know, we can't necessarily go with anything super high tech, at least in this country, because there are still a lot of people who don't have access, you know, 24 seven access to the internet. Right. I don't know. Well, I'll have to look up the, uh, the story I heard of somebody using something pretty high tech that I was like, Oh, like everybody at birth gets something and I forget what it was, but it wasn't a social security number. Yeah. But anyway, I'll I mean, it would be, up. it would be great if it were a, uh, an account that is with a secured government server and has, you know, physical 2FA. The secured government server, huh? Hmm. Also, I would, I wouldn't mind seeing there be some sort of like criminal negligence, charges when in situations like this where it's just like okay this was ridiculous there was negligent like you were negligent no i mean it's it's gonna hurt them in their wallets i don't know about you but i'm never doing business with equifax again 
that was sarcasm for the record just to be clear <laughs> right that was a conversation we had when we were talking about this in the security chat room at thoughtbot was like somebody was like like the stock had gone down this was like a couple days after it had happened and somebody was like might be a good time to buy equifax stock and i was like mm, probably in a couple more days but yeah you're right and then we like for sake of comparison we pulled up the volkswagen stock which was, you know, they had a pretty big, like, not a financial security thing, but like a, <laughs> we totally lied to right. you for a really long time. And we've been polluting the planet far worse than we had let on. And, you know, people at the time, myself included, thought like, this might be the end of Volkswagen. And their stock is up 30% from the low after that scandal. So like, I think Equifax, yeah. is, you know, if, if you want a hot stock tip, uh, <laughs> I'm joking about that. I know nothing about stocks. I don't know. I feel like I have to read a disclaimer now. <laughs> yeah, probably something that you have no insider trading information. Right. Unlike the executives at Equifax who, who were allowed to sell large numbers of stock. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's just ridiculous. I don't know, but if there's something for our listeners to take from this other than like, hey, put that lock on your credit on your credit score like we talked about or on your credit history is that if you are doing anything with really any personally identifiable information, but really financial information is certainly more sensitive, you really got to take this stuff seriously and you can't rely on like, well, this is really obscure and like we're really small and, you know, I know Equifax is really huge, but they like just today there was a report about like some content blog, somebody was able to log into the admin site with the username and password of admin admin, right? It was an Equifax content. Right. Blog. It was like, okay, like, <laughs> you know, and you're thinking like, this is just our little WordPress blog over here. What's that? And it's, and it may be nothing like great. Congratulations. They sign into WordPress and they can do what update the content, but they can like put a link somewhere to a phishing site, or maybe they can use that server as a jumping off point to your internal network or like, well, and the check if you were affected thing was just a WordPress right. site too. I don't remember specifically what it was, but I remember hearing buzz that was like a poorly secured WordPress application. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, I'm also a big fan, though, in terms of, you know, not keeping social security numbers. That's great. Uh, not keeping credit card numbers. That's great. I'm also a big fan of not keeping login data. As in like this person last logged in or as in this? No, as in like have, giving them a, a password. Right. Do you need to identify particular users? Is that your Is that like does your site need to? I no. Well, do you need to identify them in a way that you can't just rely on OpenID, Google login, Facebook login, Twitter login, whatever right. suite of third-party logins you choose to allow? Right, and build integrations for all those third-party logins. And oh yeah, because there's not there's no libraries out there for all of these in every language. Present UI for all those third-party logins. Because there's no libraries for that. No, in but every it's, just it's I think it adds to user confusion. I don't think it's. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure about that one. I think we're a long way off from the average user using a password manager. Right. That's true. And I like when I, my reaction when I see those things is like log it when it says like log in with Google, log in with X, log in with Y is like, is it work related? Then yes, I will go ahead and log in with Google. Is mm -hmm. it not work? Is it like personal related? Then I want to look for the link that says like, or sign up with a username and password because right. I'm going to give you a unique password. I'm not going to give you any right. email because I'm going to use the same email, but like I'm, I'm going to give you a unique password and I'm confident about that. But most people aren't doing that. You're right. Right. And, and the reason that they reuse passwords because they have too many damn passwords. Right. <laughs> yep. Do we have anything else to say about Equifax? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's ridiculous how much everybody's life can be impacted by a company that they in no way chose to do business with and have no control over whether or not that company is collecting their information. Mm -hmm. 
what know. are you going to do? Pay for everything in cash <laughs> that you actually have? <laughs> I, I've been trying. Unfortunately, I only have rupees and rubles in my wallet. <laughs> All right. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 125. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other previous episodes, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, leave a comment on our website, or what else can you do? <laughs> uh, email us, leave a tweet comment us. on the website, you tweet us tweet at tweet underscore us at, at underscore bike shed. We're keeping this. Go ahead. <laughs> you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> I've only done it 120 times. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> yeah, you think, you think we'd have this down after however many years we've been doing this? Oh.